This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. This podcast is brought to you through support from our partner, the Kaliapea Foundation. The Kaliapea Foundation envisions a future grounded in compassion, respect, dignity, reverence for nature, and care for each other and the earth. Other programs supported by Kaliapea include the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance and Led to Life. To learn more about Kaliapea's mission, visit Kaliapea.org. Welcome to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. We're all very conscious of the fact that it's not enough to just make a movie and to get in the film festivals and to have Netflix buy the film and yada da da da. We are witnesses, we are voices, and the world needs to hear what these voices have to say. Today we are speaking with James Baylog. For 40 years, photographer James Baylog has broken new conceptual and artistic ground on one of the most important issues of our era, human modification of nature. An avid mountaineer with a graduate degree in geography and geomorphology, his new film, The Human Element, is an innovative and visually stunning look at how humanity interacts with earth, air, fire, and water. Its world premiere was at the San Francisco Film Festival in April. Since then, it has been screened from across North America to venues in Europe and New Zealand. To reveal the impact of climate change, James founded the Extreme Ice Survey in 2007. It is the most wide-ranging, ground-based photographic study of glaciers ever conducted. The project was featured in the internationally acclaimed documentary Chasing Ice. James is the author of eight books and extensively published in the world's magazines, particularly National Geographic. So to begin, I'd love to ask some questions about the stories you tell in The Human Element and how these elements are operating in the Anthropocene. So for instance, in The Human Element, you visit Vindendale, Pennsylvania, where your grandfather lived and died as a coal miner. And the dynamics of coal in this country are intricate and emotional. They're also often brushed aside by those who don't have any sort of connection or understanding. And you interview a former coal miner, Brody Dixon, who says, quote, When you work in the coal mines, coal becomes part of you. You go in the ground miles under the earth. Imagine rock dust going everywhere. It gets on you under your clothes, under your skin, under your nails, in your eyes, in your mouth. There's something spiritual about it. You become connected to this thing in a sense. It becomes part of you, end quote. This portion of the film also narrates your family's connection to coal. So I'd love if you could begin by sharing more about the emotional or 
let's say, invisible dimensions or repercussions coal has on families and individuals, and what complexities are continuously being lost in the conversation on coal? Well, <laughs> those are really big questions and very long answers. I'll try and try and keep it simple. You know, first of all, uh, I assume that uh, uh, most everybody listening to this podcast is probably a, a fairly uh, passionate environmentalist, uh, probably left-leaning, and uh, and I am too. And we tend to have this, um, oh, what's the right word? We, we have a somewhat myopic view of things like coal and the, and the people who work in that environment. We tend to have a sort of a holier-than-thou righteousness at times. Um, and what, I, what we wanted to do with this part of the film was to reach across the aisle and to acknowledge that we are all connected in some fashion or another to this fossil fuel age. Nobody stands separate from this. You know, when I, when I have to drive somewhere to photograph a redwood tree, or when somebody jumps in a raft to float down the Colorado River, or you pack up your Gore-Tex gear to go up to the Arctic and go on a climbing trip, you're in some fashion dependent on the fossil fuel economy. You know, an awful lot of things that we use are connected with fossil fuels. So that's kind of the first order of business. We all have to recognize that we're in and of that system, and we're not some uh, self-righteous twits who stand outside it. Now, that became very personal for me uh, when we were shooting that part of the film that you refer to. The, the grandparents on both sides of my family were uh, from coal mining towns in Pennsylvania. My father's father was killed when the roof of a mine in a little town called Vintendale collapsed in 1946. I wasn't born yet. I never knew him. But his sacrifice and his martyrdom became a critical part of family lore. Um, you know, those, those people back in that time worked incredibly hard and took tremendous risks. You know, they were, they were leaving very limited, uh, circumstances in my case in Eastern Europe, uh, in Russia, actually, my ancestors came over looking for a better life, looking for job opportunities. And they found that those opportunities here, uh, in the United States. And they worked very, very hard. All their kids went to college. Uh, you know, it was kind of amazing what they were able to do. Uh, we revisited Vintendale with my father, who at the time was 89 years old. And he took us around the town. He showed us the home where he had grown up, this little shack that the mine company had owned. Uh, he showed us where the mine opening into the mountainside had been for uh, the mine number six where the miners would go in every day and they'd ride these little cars six, seven, eight miles down into the darkness in the mountain and go chiseling out the coal. And as we were filming all of this, I realized that I had had sort of an imbalanced relationship in my unconsciousness and my heart and my head with that history. And the imbalance was that I never fully accepted that heritage without feeling a sense of shame from it. And the more I've thought about it, the more I've realized that many, many, many people in this country share uh, similar sorts of family ancestry, ancestries that are connected with being working class, 
with doing manual labor, whether it's farming or logging or fishing or construction or road building or whatever, lots or railroad building, you know, lots and lots and lots of our ancestors were, were connected to all of those sorts of works. And you, you have to eventually realize through that connection to the truth of what your background is, that there was, um, uh, that those earlier people did what they had to do, that it was noble work, it was virtuous work. And the noble and virtuous work of our time is to go beyond the limitations, go beyond the tools, go beyond the technologies, go, go beyond, beyond the ways of thinking and being that those people were forced to use and do better and take us, uh, take our society and the opportunities for our children further and farther. I'm really glad that you speak to the complexities of the guilt and the shame of coming from a resource extractive colonizer uh, inheritance, so to speak. And I know I've dealt a lot with that in my own life and also coming to this place where not to say that I should necessarily be ashamed, but also knowing that I do have to take responsibility for the ways in which I uphold the Anthropocene and this very destructive system that's creating climate destabilization and, uh, you know, social destabilization globally. It's, it's that walking that fine line of, of holding ourselves accountable, but also not letting the enormity of the situation totally crush us underneath the weight of the pressure. So I, I really appreciate you speaking to that, especially in such a personal way. Now on this other well, element, I, oh, mm -hmm. I, um, I really love the fact that you're so aware right away of the Anthropocene. And I, um, I came up with a, a term about 10 years ago uh, that I use quite a lot in the public lectures I give, and that is human tectonics. Uh, human tectonics are the actual uh, deeds that we do, the acts that we do, the behaviors that we do that create the Anthropocene. So the uh, human tectonics and the Anthropocene are two sides of the same coin. Again, human tectonics are the actions. The Anthropocene is the geologic time in which these actions are taking place and forever bending the arc of history. And it's critical to realize that we are in the middle of that process right now. We're actually, we're at the beginning of realizing that we're in that process. I love the term um, human tectonics. I, it really brings to mind the power that we have as a species and we've we're seeing that in the anthropocene and in a epoch that is shaped by our behaviors by the way we relate to each other by with the way we relate to this planet and resources and our consumption so i i really appreciate that and i'd love to think more about human tectonics and just sit with that um but i want to move on to the element of air and in the film, you visit a family in Denver, Colorado, that is plagued with asthma brought on from air pollution. And I have to say, I was just in Utah for Sundance Film Festival, and the air pollution in Salt Lake City was really unbelievable. I was really shocked to learn that more than half of all Americans live in unhealthy air every day. And it's estimated that 9 out of 10 people on Earth are breathing in highly polluted air. 
And we know that by admitting waste into the air, you know, we are changing its chemical characteristics. We know that this also results in heating of the atmosphere. But I was actually hoping you could share more about the idea that in terms of elements, when we change the air, we change ourselves. Yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of the, the critical issue that lays right at the bottom of the foundation of the human element as an idea, the, the film. And it came, that idea came to me about 10 years ago, and it took a long time for it to gestate and turn into the film we see today. But essentially, the, the baseline realization is that air, even though you can't see it, is a tangible physical substance. It weighs 14.7 pounds per square inch at sea level. It has it has weight and mass and volume. It's real, you know. It's there around us all the time. And in fact, I've come to believe that, you know, if we were able to really see air, we would be having a much different uh, conversation about climate change. If we could see it in all its physicality and see it changing, we wouldn't be arguing about whether or not climate change is real. So to go from that the physicality to this question of the human impact, you've got to recognize the fact that whether you perceive the air as being polluted or not, like where you live on the coast of California, you're breathing very clear air uh, relative to many of the rest of us. You're breathing air that's coming right off the Pacific Ocean. But even if it appears to be perfectly unpolluted and clean, it actually is still changing because of the of the the greenhouse gases that are getting dumped into it. And the air is changing all the time uh, with the carbon dioxide and methane and the nitrous oxide and all the rest of it. So we in the film uh, focused on this family that had asthma and the children have to go to a special school where they can get constant uh, uh, medication to mitigate their symptoms. But so the, the story really starts with earth and we take materials from the earth, whether it's coal or oil or natural gas, or in some cases, firewood, we burn that stuff and we dump the effluent from the burning into the atmosphere. When you do that, then you change the air. When you change the air, you change the hydrologic cycle. You change the heat that's in the atmosphere. And the hydrologic cycle means, among other things, that you're heating uh, the oceans and you're heating the air and, and, and water that's frozen on land, i.e. ice, melts and goes into the seas. When the water goes into the seas, the sea level comes up and you have all these consequences that I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, but in addition, when you change the chemistry of the air, you wind up with, um, uh, with an altered heat balance in the world and that in turn drives out vegetation, creates conditions that allow wildfires to explode more violently than ever before. And that's what the wildfire section of the film is all about. So all these things tie together, play together, work together, are revealed together in their, in their interaction in this film. Now, as someone who has been working around climate issues for almost 20 years, I'm curious if you think the general perception of climate change has changed at all or is it still our greatest hurdle 
You know, I think about the sort of conversations people were having a decade ago, which was that we understood climate change as something that, you know, say the next two generations would begin to feel, you know, not not our generation kind of vibe. Whereas now it has become apparent that not only are we the ones who are going to have to deal with it, but we're also going to have to be significantly impacted in this life right now. Yet, despite this recognition, it would appear that many still understand climate change kind of in this abstract, out there, somebody else's problem way. So I'm wondering, what are the difficulties of addressing this perception of climate change? And how much of our perception is limited due to the siloing of fields like art and climate science, for example? You know, what is the importance of creative integration? Well, again, there's a lot of questions and a lot of answers uh, embedded in, in those very, uh, very well, in your very well thought out statement. I think the number one thing to realize is that there is a very strong majority of people in the United States who recognize that the climate is changing. If you look at the Yale University Six Americas project and their polling, it's over 70 percent now that accepts that there is climate change. And there is a majority, I think it's about 55%. Don't quote me on this, I haven't looked at the graphs in a while, but there's a solid majority, better than the majority by which uh, presidents get elected in this country, that understands that there is human um, triggering of climate change, that we are involved in some fashion. And those, those two numbers, the recognition of climate change in general and the recognition of humanity's role in it, those numbers have gone up steadily. Uh, they took a little dip about six or seven years ago, but in recent years they have gone up. So there's more people getting this. Uh, I think it's too easy on, on, on our side of the spectrum to feel a sense of frustration and to say, why isn't, any, why isn't everybody getting this? Why are, why are we so slow to change? Those are two separate questions. I think enough people are getting it. I just think that the institutions, uh, whether it's government or finance or technology, uh, are slow to change. So that's the, that's the part of it that we have to move on. And I, and I would like to point out in the context of, of this, uh, this issue that I have fairly recently come to the idea that we should be speaking about climate protection, climate protection instead of climate change, because protecting the climate is something that feels real and immediate to people's lives, whereas stressing about and thinking about and changing your behavior today because you're worried about the climate change tomorrow, that's kind of abstract for many, many people. But people get the fact that the climate is changing around them. That means the weather is changing. You know, these, those two things go together. The climate is the cumulative addition of weather events that are surrounding you. And people get that. I can't emphasize that enough. So if we talk about climate protection, because that is impacting our worlds today, I think there's a very large constituency that comprehends this and is in favor of addressing it. Life on a thin line 
Like I had mentioned at the beginning of this interview, I saw Chasing Ice probably a dozen times, and that was a film that you created that came out in 2012, and it told the story of your pursuit in gathering evidence of a changing planet through the Extreme Ice Survey, and EIS implemented time-lapse cameras across the Arctic to capture the continuous melting of the world's glaciers, and it was stunningly beautiful and also very um, sobering to see these images. And I'm curious as to what your reflection is and what the impact of this project has had on your life years later. You know, how has capturing glaciers developed your understanding of climate change? And what has it meant to document landscapes that may never, ever be seen again in our, you know, in our lifetimes or any, anywhere in the near future? And do you think this visual legacy has moved the needle forward? Yeah, well, yeah, you know, when I when I first put out those time-lapse cameras and started the Extreme Ice Survey in, in 2007, I thought it would be a three-year project, but the project is still going on. We're about to begin our 13th field season, and that's simply because the, uh, the sheer historical interest of what we've seen changing in the landscape is too great to turn away from, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of the fact that I've got a moral obligation, a scientific obligation, a historical obligation to keep this record going as long as uh, I've got two legs and two eyes, you know, it's, um, we're, we're watching history unfolding in front of those cameras. So here we go, you know, field season number 13. And, um, when I started, uh, the project, I really didn't know uh, if if I could execute it. I didn't know if I could make cameras that would work. I didn't know what the glaciers would do. I didn't know how I would fund the project. And I certainly didn't know how the public would react. But as it turned out, we almost right away got these stunning uh, uh, pictures of change in these huge masses of ice uh, right in front of the cameras in relatively short periods of time. And suddenly uh, that visual evidence became a, a central part of the climate change uh, conversation. And I, I've always found the, the work and the pictures sort of a, a paradoxical combination of incredibly fascinating and incredibly horrifying. Uh, and frankly, that sort of, <laughs> that, that uh, contradictory dynamic between uh, beauty and horror, or fascination and, and, uh, and, and dismay, uh, 
goes through a lot of my work on the Anthropocene. You know, I've been I've been shooting this issue of human tectonics in the Anthropocene since basically 1980, so essentially 40 years in a lot of different ways, and it's been the same thing over and over again. And I've there's there's no reconciling it. You you acknowledge that you're in the middle of opposites. You're in the middle of paradoxes. And that just comes with the territory. And so you try and bear witness to it and bring the evidence back and show people. So I, I you know, I keep doing what I have to do. It gives, uh, it gives life meaning and purpose, I guess, uh, as difficult as it often is. You know, this, this ice work has been, has cost me terribly in terms of the health of my body, time away from my family. The financial cost is way up in the multiple millions of dollars. Uh, that it's, it's all had to be raised from grants and from personal donations. Uh, it's hard work, but I feel like it's my duty for better or for worse, or my opportunity for better or for worse to show up and pay attention. Uh, I don't want to be an old man in a rocking chair sitting on a porch swing and having my, my daughters saying to me, you know, dad, you knew what was going on. And you had the knowledge and you used to go to these places. Why weren't you doing something? So there we go. Mm. I really appreciate so deeply your integrity and commitment to the planet and to storytelling and to expanding people's knowledge, understanding. Even I'm sure Chasing Ice was an introduction to many people around what's happening with the glaciers. And the images were so so powerful that it was something undeniable to witness that. So I, I really appreciate that. And I have another question that's been mulling over my, <laughs> through my head. And I had just been to Sundance Film Festival and interviewed a lot of incredible filmmakers there. And it feels like environmental, social justice films, climate documentaries, and alternative media are all really desperately trying to tell hard truths and counter narratives. But at the same time, they are, of course, operating in the same capitalist system that creates the demise they are trying to convey. And in fact, film and media take up a lot of resources, and they are dependent on generating revenue as well. And I am not separate from this system. And so I feel this in my own questioning and existential <laughs> crises at time. So I guess not only am I curious about the responsibility of the media and, say, Hollywood, but I'd also like to know, as a filmmaker, what do you ask and expect of your audience? You know, are you putting a story out there and hoping for the best? Is bearing witness enough? Or do you feel a responsibility to create direct calls to action? Well, those are extremely good questions uh, uh, for the film industry, especially in the television industry. A few of us, certainly our team, uh, the team that uh, that did Chasing Coral, the team that did Racing Extinction, um, uh, and, and uh, Josh Fox's folks, we're all very conscious of the fact that it's not enough to just make a movie and to get in the film festivals and to have Netflix buy the film and yada, da, da, da. We are witnesses, we are voices, and the world needs to hear what these voices have to say. I, I once uh, heard an anthropologist uh, speaking on the radio and she said, 
you know, one of the salient characteristics of the human race is that we seek patterns and we like to tell stories about those patterns. And I thought about that and I realized that the sciences are the pattern recognition. They're figuring out how the world works, how this piece fits with that piece uh, in the course of time, measuring the, the processes of things fitting together through time. And the storytelling is, of course, communication and the arts, interpreting uh, what's going on in the world, maybe on a very, very you know, personal and individual kind of a way in some cases, or maybe illuminating the science in other cases. So um, I feel a very deep sense of responsibility to show up and, and bear witness, as I already said. It, it has to be done, uh, because otherwise the bad guys rule the narrative. If we don't tell the stories, the stories that uh, ExxonMobil is telling will be the only ones that the world will know. Uh, so as much as it sometimes feels like we're fighting a rear guard action because the uh, power of the forces arrayed against us is so enormous, we just have to do it. It's just the way it is. So. Um, you know, that can be hard to live with sometimes. It can be really tiring. It can be depressing. It can burn you out. I've had plenty of burnout times in the course of this past um, almost 15 years now. Um, but you just have to do it. It's the truth of our time. And, and we have the mechanisms for speaking the truth. Now, do all filmmakers feel that? Do all Hollywood production studios feel that? Hell no. You know, the, the industry is... For most people, it's about making money. You know, they do Project X and they the project goes through a certain cycle and they collect whatever revenue they can through that cycle and they move on and they do another production. But uh, a few of us stay with the mission and stay with the causes and move forward and try and reshape the narrative that society is getting about itself. Thank you for being so direct and honest. I'm also really happy that you brought up burnout, you know, sharing with us that you have experienced burnout, but that you got back on the horse, so to speak, because I think for a lot of folks, because of the way that many of us have been conditioned in North America, there's this fear of getting started. There's a fear of just doing it. There's a fear of burning out, or maybe the fear is if somebody burns out, they'll never be able to go out again, or it's kind of like, well, try not to burn out. But I really, when I heard you respond, my take was, this work is hard, and it's exhausting. And there's times that it will take you away from the ones you love. And there's times that you will have to sacrifice all that you are to push a story forward. But that's also just part of the gig and burning out at times is part of the gig. And I feel like if we can just speak honestly truthfully and prepare ourselves for this lifetime of work and commitment, dedication, and really sticking with our vow to what we believe in, I feel like that that love is what sees us through um, rather than whether it's just the numbers or the accomplishments or the financial successes um, or even, you know, the successes we have in an environmental impact, a social justice way, you know, there's, there is always more, but it's not, um, it shouldn't stop us. It shouldn't be something that 
scares us. And and so I, I would love to hear you kind of speak more to that because even thinking about the three we've talked about so far, the the photos of the redwoods that you took back in the early 2000s and chasing ice and now the human element, these are all huge, large scale projects. And you've mentioned they've taken years and so much effort. And so I'm thinking about for the people, well, I guess, you know, I want to read a quote in the human element, you say, quote, we depend on the stability of the fundamental elements of the world. An imbalance in one element leads to the imbalance in another. People are the only element that can choose to restore balance. Our deeds are leaving their imprint in the fabric of time. Things we know we shouldn't do and the things we do with grace, truth, and honest commitment. It's up to us to make the right choices, end quote. So I'd love if you could share at least one vision you have for our species that promotes balance. And then if you could also speak about finding personal balance and for those of us listening, these, uh, you know, passionate activists, how we can find balance in the long run. Well, remind me to come back to the personal balance, because right now I'm going to go off on kind of the, I don't know, I guess it's personal, but it's also collective. You know, back in the 60s, when they, uh, uh, when NASA was uh, scrambling to try and uh, get astronauts to land on the moon, they had a slogan that was the uh, sort of the, the mantra of all those flight controllers uh, in the mission control. And the mantra was, failure is not an option. And I heard about that slogan. Um, I had heard about it, I guess, decades ago, but I heard about it quite early on when I was working on, uh, on the Extreme Ice Survey. And I realized, you know, that's a perfect framing concept and with a slight twist. Yes, definitely failure is not an option. We don't have an option to fail on climate protection right now. But the other thing we don't have an option on is despair. Despair is not an option. Because when you're despairing, you get depressed. And when you get depressed, all you want to do is curl up in a corner, pull a blanket over your head, and be cynical and make things go away and tell the world to screw off. And... uh, we just simply can't do that. And just um, uh, not even a year ago, I, I was driving past a beautiful part of southwestern Colorado in the San Juans uh, on this beautiful spring day, looking up at these snow-covered peaks. And I realized that, you know, in, in modern psychology, they, they talk about how depression is anger turned inwards. Uh, you get frustrated, you know, you kind of, not all depression is that, of course, but but many times you're looking at something outside yourself, you feel angry at yourself because you can't do anything about it, and you turn it inwards and you get depressed. Well, action, I realized, can be anger turned outwards. So instead of taking that anger and that frustration and turning it in on yourself and being bummed out and depressed and Curling up in the corner, you say, damn it, I'm going to pull that out of the darkness in my gut, and I'm going to go out outside myself and do what needs to be done. And I think that's key to moving forward for all of us. So that leads me to another really key point, and that is that we can do all these different things 
to reveal the truth of what's going on. We can use art and we can use science and we can use politics and we can use activism. So let's just say for the sake of simplicity, art and science may reveal, but heart and soul must resolve. The two sides of that equation go together. You know, in the end, this is all about the human heart and, and the in the ethics and the belief systems and spirituality. All of those things need to be harvested here so that we can resolve these issues because there's no one magic uh, silver bullet that can fix this thing. This is a big multi-layered problem and we need to bring all the forces of humanity that we have to bear to fix this problem. So I would say again, art and, soul, uh, art and science may reveal but heart and soul must resolve. asked me to remind you to talk about your personal balance, but I kind of want to um, preface that into another question around, and this kind of, I think, gets to the personal balance question a little bit. And now I know you've had such a breadth of work, and I'm wondering what it's meant for you as a photographer, as a filmmaker, to transition from wanting to document, say, the timeless beauty of nature or just the timeless magnificence of nature, to documenting the urgent and chaotic relationship between people and nature. How do you reflect on humans and nature in your work, and are they viewed as separate or together, or is it a story of violence and separation? Well, you have done your homework better than almost any, any reporter I've ever spoken with. You ask some very, very astute questions. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. It's um, I'm, I'm writing a book right now, and I just the other day I wrote a couple of lines in there about how 
I wish sometimes that I could just be the photographer I was 30 years ago and be happy with photographing beautiful nature in celebratory images. You know, that's where I started out, like so many uh, nature photographers do, environmental photographers. You just, you know, think the world is a spectacular place and isn't it great to put a camera up against it and make some sort of a uh, photographic rendition of it. But um, destiny took me elsewhere. And in fact, it was really, really early in my photographic development that I realized that I was seeing this constant conflict between people and nature. Uh, I was just writing that part of the book this morning. And I was seeing things back in 1980, 81, 82, that were representations of that. Uh, ski patrollers were, try were using dynamite to blast avalanches off mountainsides. Uh, Idaho farmers were rounding up uh, 10,000 jackrabbits on a Saturday morning and clubbing them to death. 10,000. Um, there were nuclear missile silos, you know, weapons of mass destruction and mass defense uh, hiding in, in agrarian bucolic landscapes out in the prairies. Lots of things, uh, you know, came up in front of my, my heart and, and my eyes. And I realized, geez, oh, this is a different part of the story. This isn't the pretty roses and moonbeams story. And this is a really, really, really important thing to be thinking about. And back at that time, there was basically nobody that I was aware of photographing these things. Uh, the closest that people came were, there was a, a group of uh, black and white photographers who were doing a, uh, who were kind of lumped by the art uh, curators uh, as the new topographics. It was people who were looking at, uh, you know, suburbia taking over um, uh, farmland and, and uh, you know, billboards out in the landscape, that sort of thing. A man named Robert Adams uh, was kind of the, the leading uh, mind behind all that work. And as, as good luck would have it, he, he lived not very far away from me at that time. And uh, I went to see him a few times, and he was, he was very much more sophisticated in his thinking about pictures than I was. And I think it was part of the inspiration that came from Bob that, uh, that helped to kick me down this road, too. It wasn't just what I was seeing out in these crazy assignments or things that I would stumble into, but it was also Bob showing another pathway. It wasn't all about pretty waterfalls surrounded by yellow aspen leaves. There was something else going on. And that's the path that I've been on all these decades since. Um, so I'm not sure how I got off on all that, but I think it was connected with what you asked me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like sometimes the question can just spark what, where the passion really wants to go. And so I, I really, I loved hearing where you went with it. And there was another quote that I was reading that you, that you had, I, th I think, spoken. And I want to read this. So you said, quote, we humans are so anchored in our natural existence. We struggle with the concept of dying and not being here. The great existential truth we all have to somehow learn is that we are all mortal and that death is a part of our lives. As sad as not being here, mortality is part of the job that we have as people. And so I'm bearing witness to mortality in these pictures. In a deeper way, I'm bearing witness to time. That's something that never stops. Time is always marching on, and I'm taking some molecules out of the current 
of time and marking what there is now that won't be here in the future. Oh, I really love what you what you communicated there and it makes me think back to the glaciers and chasing ice and these, you know, once towering masses of ancient ice are now crumbling before our very eyes. And I'm curious if you feel a connection between our existential stability and the diminishing longevity of glaciers, or how does this relate to our inability to grasp mortality and our country's obsession with increasing lifespan beyond its normal expectancy while simultaneously curtailing the lifespans of so many other beings around us? Wow. Um, well, first of all, I, I thought that was a pretty nice quote that you read. I actually wrote that. Where did you get that? <laughs> yeah, uh, I, it might have also been from an interview. I'm looking back through my notes to find exactly where, but I, I will find that at some point and send it to you because it was beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I would very much like to have that and uh, incorporate that into this book. I, I could I could riff on that for a whole chapter. No, that's that's <laughs> I, I, I must have must have been on a very good wave when I was uh, <laughs> surfing their way out of me. So, yeah, I'd love to have my hands on that one again. Um, maybe it's a hyper-aware part of me that's been with me for a long time. Maybe it's a morbid part of me. Maybe it's a part of my Russian heritage. You know, Russians are f kind of famously existentially dark and melancholy. Uh, maybe it's, I don't know what. Um, but I, 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 I find myself... Uh, for a very long time, maybe uh, unhealthily conscious of mortality, uh, conscious of the fact that the world that I see as I sit here today uh, is is transitory um, and that there uh, that it won't always be this. And so there is an aspect of that kind of inner um, awareness manifesting itself in uh, in the photographs and the projects that I choose to take on. You know, I, I, I find that there's an almost impossible to define combination of, 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 of thoughts and feelings and ideas that have to come together in order to kind of get the hook in my, in my soul and make me go forward with a project. And, um, and I suppose now that you mention it, that sense of time passing and mortality is, is maybe one of those generally unseen, undiscussed factors that I'm looking for to, um, to pull me into a new project. So I, I appreciate your bringing that, uh, that quotation out of the darkness again. Um, but yeah, we're, you know, we're all, we're all, we're all little bits of flotsam and jetsam floating along in time. And maybe, maybe time doesn't go in one direction the way a river does. Maybe it just goes around in big circles. And who, who knows? You know, we'll never know what the answer to that is. But um, we are literally molecular elements in this great, you know, seeding, churning thing of existence. And, of course, we all feel that when we have loved ones who die or friends who die uh, or you're at a funeral or you're at a birth, you know, you get it during those really acute moments. But in most of our lives, you can't live with that searing realization of mortality all the time. And so you just kind of go blithely tripping along and getting a cup of coffee and driving to the grocery store and whatever it is you have to do. But in fact, uh, this is all passing all the time. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a part of me that uh, you know feels that acutely in these in all of these all these projects, all these pictures, in all these places for 40 years. This is time, you know. I'm parachuting into time. Uh, these different slices of reality as they're passing in time, and I'm trying to put it put a memory of that uh, in a rectangle and and let it go forth and forward into the future. I often think of this work as being a time capsule. And if uh, if I had more energy and more time and more tolerance for fundraising and more proposals and more meetings and constantly running around to try and, and uh, pitch ideas, I would like to see all of this work, especially the ICE project, wind up in a gigantic protected time capsule somewhere in a cave in a mountainside. And, and it stowed away for 500 years and not opened up. And let somebody uh, rack open that cookie jar 500 years from now and see what this was really like. I've always been super interested in history, uh, even back when I was in uh, grade school. And, and I started college as a history major, dropped it, but I still read thousands of pages of uh, world history on a regular basis. Uh, I've been diving in deep on the American Revolution for about a year, among other things. But the point is, Think about history. Think about how, you know, we talked about 500 years. Well, picture 500 years ago. Hell, you're back in the time of the Tudor kings in England, you know, how different that world was. And you take that differentness and you spin that forward into the future that's in front of us. It's incomprehensible what 500 years from now will look like. You can barely get your head around what 200 years from now will look like. But in any event, the world that we're living in right now is changing. And um, and uh, there, there's something really profound and beautiful and, and heart-wrenching in the fact that that changing world is being preserved in the, in the images in, these, uh, in this work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm always so moved and appreciative of looking back at archival photos of the Redwoods. So, you know, just as an example of seeing what the land looked like, who the people were, who were, you know, the colonizers, so to speak, that were shifting the land so drastically and the first peoples who were here as well. And it's, it it really helps us understand because we're not in a culture anymore so much where we are connected with our past. And so, of course, we don't fully understand our future because we have lost such a deep connection to who we are as humans. And I'm speaking to those of us in this wrapped up in this dominant culture. So I, I definitely see so much power in that. And as we are wrapping up this conversation, I have one last question for you. So I read that in doing outreach for this film, you've been visiting places that are really otherwise left out of the environmental movement And it seems like your film diverges from other climate documentaries in that it isn't just preaching to the choir on the science behind climate change and global warming. And I'm curious about the response you're receiving and how is widening the audience to these issues vital in creating actionable change? Well, I I think it's key that we speak across the aisle, as they say uh, on the floor of the Congress in Washington, you know, we can't just talk to those who are already converted. So, so we need to find different mechanisms for telling stories that relate to different constituencies. And so, yeah, I mean, we, we have 
uh, we have a story in the film that takes us to a mountaintop coal mining site in uh, in Kentucky, where some entrepreneurs are taking some terribly degraded landscape and turning it into a gigantic uh, uh, installation of solar panels to generate electricity. We're looking at um, at sea level rise in uh, lower Chesapeake Bay, which is a pretty conservative part of the world, and yet people are touched on a real immediate uh, regular basis by the consequences of sea level rise. They, they live with it in their front yards and in their, and, and, and in the splashing salt water under the tires of their cars annually, you know, it keeps going on. Uh, so you need to tell stories that a lot of different people can relate to. I found it especially gratifying to be asked to come to Kentucky to both Louisville and Lexington and show the film, the human element to people who are from the business community in that part of the world. Now, remember, Kentucky is Mitch McConnell country, uh, just to help bracket what the, what the local politics are like. And in the one audience, it was in front of a whole bunch of coal mining executives and heavy equipment uh, uh, suppliers who, who work in the coal mining business. And those folks were really gratified by the fact that we we told a balanced story, and they they said that explicitly to me afterwards in the cocktail party after the screening, but also in the standing ovation they gave gave us when we came up on the stage, and and it was because they said, look, you don't paint us as a bunch of toothless rednecks spitting tobacco, you treat us as human beings, and you acknowledge that yeah, okay, this situation is imperfect, but, uh, you know, that there, that there is a path forward. And a lot of these coal mining guys are saying, you know, we know that coal is not forever. We know we're going to change this. We're looking for a way out, and you showed us through this solar panel thing one of the possibilities for the way out, out in deep in the heart of Appalachia, where there really aren't very many jobs, except for coal mining. So you're, you're showing us some possibilities here, and we appreciate that. So we have to, you know, kind of keep keep on that track. Um, and, and I'd like to close with, a, with um, an explicit um, reminder that we people are all in this together, you know? We're not only in this together as a, as a society, as a, as, a, as a financial system, whether we like the, the capitalist enterprise or not, uh, we are in this together. And we are also all nature. We're not separate from nature. And that's what you rightly pointed out some time ago, the Anthropocene is saying to us. And that's, that's the key to so much here. Uh, you know, a lot of environmentalists have resisted the idea of the Anthropocene because they claim that it's making us feel like we're these dominant kings of nature again, which I don't think that's really what it's saying at all. What the Anthropocene means is that we're acknowledging through an intellectual maturation of uh, Western civilization, we're acknowledging that we are in and of nature, part and parcel of nature. And if we're to fix our problems, we can do them better if, the, if we realize that if we damage nature, it's going to come back and damage us. So we are in and of nature. We're not separate from nature. Thank you so much, James, for your time and this uh, capsule of your life's work. And I'm so excited to read your book. And I'm yeah, excited to see what's on the horizon for you.
Well, my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. It's been a lovely chat. I, I would love to keep on going. Now, I, I, I would like to mention that the human element is now available online. Um, it's uh, available on iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, Fandango, now Xbox, Voodoo, and PlayStation. Uh, so if you're interested in seeing the film, check it out. And again, the easiest, uh, the easiest channels are iTunes, Google Play, and Amazon. Um, so that's my pitch that I want to make sure gets in the show here. Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayanna Young. The music you heard today was from Drug Dealer. Okay, folks, I want to take a minute here and plug our bonus content on Patreon this week. We have the pleasure of introducing Courtney Ray from Bark. Hi, my name is Courtney Ray, and I use she and they pronouns. Bark is a volunteer led and nonprofit watchdog group that's working to defend and protect. Uh, and restore Mount Hood National Forest. So what we're going to do today is learn one of the like fundamental tactics that Bark uses to oppose destructive projects on public lands, and in particular commercial logging projects. And I just absolutely love the talk that she gave to our crew at the Reciprocity Retreat back in July in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest, and then taking us on a ground-truthing mission in the forest there to really teach us how can we look at a forest and understand the bureaucratic BS that logging industries jump through in order to take exactly what they want and the skills that we can learn how to stop that and really be eyes on the ground and ears to the ground. So anywho, I hope you get a chance to take a listen over at Patreon and support Courtney Ray and Bark. I'd like to thank our podcast crew, our podcast audio producer, Andrew Stores, our media researcher and writer, Francesca Glassbell, Aaron Wise, our social media coordinator, Hannah Wilton, our guest coordinator, and Carter Lou McElroy, our music coordinator. (laughs) 